is on the doctrines in our statement of faith. Uh, let me just give you a heads up, though, about what the next two Sundays look like. So next week, Pastor Dan is going to preach another message that's born out of what the Lord has been laying on his heart over his last year of cancer journey. Uh, and then after that, two weeks from now, is when Pastor Todd is going to finish this series of the Statement of Faith uh, about the last things, eschatology. Uh, today we're talking again about the doctrine of the church, and specifically the purpose and mission of the church. What are we, what are we about? What's God doing? Why does he gather all these people together? To do what? So we talked about that somewhat last week. I'm not going to say very much about the overall purpose of the church this morning, but there's three parts to it, and they're actually on the wall here. Um, and they show up every once in a while on slides that scroll through. Worship, grow, go. We've preached on this before. There's three general categories of what God wants to do in and through his church. Worship God, grow in Christ, go and make disciples. So there's the vertical, us and God, worship. That's in and of itself a wonderful thing. There's the growth, which is the one anothering. It's the stirring each other up to love and good deeds and to become like Jesus. And then there's the going part, which is let's take this on the road. Let's get other people into this. Let's bring other people into the relationship with Jesus Christ that we enjoy. That's the part we're focusing on today. We also call it mission or sometimes the great commission, going back to Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So it's the taking it on the road part. It's what does God want us to be doing in the world? Uh, not just in here, but like out there. What, what, what's our place in this world that we live in? And so to find out more about that mission, we are going to look at a church that is a demonstration of it, of doing it. And it's the church in a city called Antioch, which is in present day, well, Syria, Israel, that area, um, a couple thousand years later. But that's, that's the church that we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at it from Acts 11 to 14. And it's an inspiring story about how God used ordinary people to spread the gospel in an extraordinary way and, and really kick off what we now call mission in the world. So before we begin, let me just give credit where credit is due. I spent three days in El Paso this week at a, a new initiative by our denomination called the Antioch Cohort. And so I'm going to be talking about Antioch because that's what we spent three days talking about in El Paso. And the goal of that, that meeting, that new initiative, uh, it was described this way, a one-year program designed to equip existing pastoral teams who feel stuck or held back in the area of mission. Well, I feel stuck <laughs> and held back when it comes to mission. It's not something that comes natural to me. Uh, evangelism and encouraging other people in evangelism, that's always been the roughest part of pastoral ministry in my experience. And so I went to get some help, and we got the help, and I got inspired, and I want to show you what I saw uh, this week. So we're going to look at Acts 11, starting in verse 19. We'll read to the end of 11, and then we'll pick up again at the end of 12 and continue the story for a few more verses, and then I'll pray. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. 
But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Jump over to 12.25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for recording for us, first of all, the fact that Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life, died on behalf of his church to pay for our sins, and then rose again in vindication and a new life, which we will follow if we trust in him. We thank you for that. And then we thank you for showing us what happened for 30 years after that, <laughs> the book of Acts, and how you moved in people and how you started this work, which we're today even experiencing the fruit of. And so what help us to see with new eyes, this fresh eyes, this passage, and to see this church and to learn what we can from it. We ask you to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what kind of church fulfills God's purpose to go and make disciples? The church in Antioch can tell us a lot. And we'll just limit ourselves to a few observations. First of all, Antioch was a church that was born out of enthusiasm for the gospel. A church that's born out of enthusiasm for the gospel is the most likely place to find somebody on mission, somebody who's going and making disciples. And that's the kind of church that this was. Here's how it got started in chapter 11. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Now let's think about that. 
These are Jewish believers in Jesus who once lived in Jerusalem, but they were being persecuted so badly that a number of them felt like they have no choice but to leave the city, to save their lives, uh, to just keep moving, going on. And so they get scattered. And, and just to give you an idea of what they faced in Jerusalem, we read back in chapter 8 that Saul who is one of the important characters in this story. He gets converted later, but back in chapter 8, he's not converted. He's a, a Pharisee attacking the church, and it says he was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison, and prison often meant execution. So it's bad in Jerusalem for believers. There's a lot of heavy-duty persecution going on. Some people are fleeing for their lives so a lot of them find another place to live, and some of them ended up about 300 miles north of Jerusalem in a city called Antioch. And now this is a very large Roman city. Uh, this is busy. This is prosperous. This is also um, pagan. It's got all the gods that the Romans and Greeks worshipped. There's a small Jewish population there, but it's a big city. Be like New York City. Be like Denver. It's a place you could get lost in if you were traveling away and fleeing from persecution. And so a number of people did. Now, what do you think would be the temptation of persecuted believers who are starting over in a new city? I would think, temptation at least, would be hunker down, uh, go into survival mode. Uh, definitely don't talk about the person that got you persecuted where you left. Um, take the safe route, blend in, just kind of start over again and don't let anybody know who you are. That would be, I think, a serious temptation for me. Interesting, that's not what they did. It says they were speaking the word. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. That means they were preaching the same thing pre Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 when he said that the Jesus who was crucified is both Lord and Christ, raised from the dead, ruling over the world. That whoever repents of their sins and puts their trust in him will be saved. That you'll be forgiven every bad thing you've ever done, every bad thing you ever will do. You'll be welcomed by God rather than judged. You will be given life forever to be lived out in a perfect world eventually. That's what they're preaching. They come with that message. That's in their conversation. They're bringing this up. Because they're going to a place where nobody is bringing this up because they don't know any of this stuff. You don't do that unless you're enthusiastic about the gospel. Unless it's something that you have said, this is true, this is life. This is too good to keep to myself. I've got to bring other people into this. Because that's what we do with things that we love, right? I mean, we, we want to bring other people into our joy. Whatever our hobby is, whatever our favorite team is. The things that are bringing us joy, we want to bring other people into that joy. That's what they're doing. They're enthusiastic about forgiveness, about being at peace with God, about having a hope and a future and promises. They didn't have to do it. Nobody in the city was expecting them to do this. 
You could get in serious trouble for talking about this. And they did it anyway because they couldn't help themselves. <laughs> That's enthusiasm for the gospel. And I have to say, enjoying the gospel for yourself, living in the good of that, is the spring that fuels all sustainable mission. It has to be. Loving Jesus is what leads to genuinely loving other people we love because he first loved us, 1 John 4.19. It's never easy to open up a conversation about Jesus with somebody else. At least I don't think it's ever easy. We have lots of fears about that. Um, and generally speaking, especially as, as Christians, our, our Christian belief more and more seems just plain wrong and offensive to people. And so we just rather would not go there and not have those hard conversations and maybe get that thrown back at us. Um, and so I've found that really the only time I'm most likely to bring that up with people is when I'm most satisfied and most full of joy and most convinced that this is life. Uh, and then it's like, okay, I'm going to go give it a shot. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass up all my fears and I'm just going to say something because it's too good not to. Um, grace is what motivates, so it, so it sustains mission. Experiencing God's love is, is the most powerful force, I think, for it. The people who moved to Antioch, they were enthusiastic, enthusiastic about the gospel, and that's good DNA for a church that's going to be going and making disciples. It's got to be the source where it springs from. And that really stands out in verse 26, what kind of people they were. It says in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. They were first called Christians in Antioch. That might seem like just a historical footnote. You know, okay, that's, it's good to know where that name came from. Um, but it's so much more than that. This is an intentional theological thing. Who called them Christians? Who did it? It doesn't say in Antioch, the the, the believers began to call themselves Christians. It doesn't say that. It says they were called that by others. <laughs> they were called that by people who were not disciples, by people in the city. What happened is the people in the city started to notice this movement among their mit in their midst. They were more and there were more and more people who seemed all excited about this person they called the Christ, which means the Messiah or the Deliverer. They kept talking about him. They wanted to live like him. Some of them were from a Jewish background, but they weren't exactly Jews. And some were from a pagan background, and they were Greeks, but they weren't pagans. So who are these people? What what do we what do we how do we like? Connect them. What's going on there? Well, let's call them Christians, which means one who is associated with Christ. That's the common denominator. That much we know is what's going on with these people. There's two takeaways from that. First, it means that the Christians lived in close enough proximity to non-believers that others could see them. They could see this in them. They didn't just live in a walled-off Christian ghetto of people who did only Christian things with Christian people all the time. If they'd have done that, nobody would have been able to say, hey, you seem like a Christian. 
because they wouldn't be living close enough to them for anybody to notice that. It's because they were actually in the city. They were actually with non-believers, non-church people, people in the world. Separation can be a temptation for us. And sometimes our life circumstances make that easy to do. If you work at home, if you homeschool your kids, if you have a Christian mechanic and a Christian hairdresser and a Christian financial advisor, which pretty much describes my life, (laughs) we can get comfortable in that world and we can just stay there. But if we stay there, what won't likely happen is verse 21 a great number who believed turned to the Lord. They need us to be in the, in, the, in the city. They need us to be in the world for that to happen. God has people that he's working on. He's got hearts that he's preparing to hear some good news. Not all hearts, to be sure, but we'll meet people whose hearts are ready as we are in the world, but not of it, to use that phrase. So let's befriend and let's be close enough to the unchurched for anybody out there so that they can see, you're a Christian, aren't you? Well, I've got some questions. (laughs) And then we've got a chance to, to bring good news. That's what they were doing in Antioch. Here's the second takeaway about them being called Christians. They were called Christians because the one thing that was most prominent about them was their love for Christ and their love in the name of Christ. They wouldn't have gotten the name Christian otherwise. It was a new word to describe people that they'd never seen before. Unfortunately, in our culture, the name Christian means something completely different to a lot of people. Uh, For example, I drove past a sign in someone's yard during last year's election season. And it said, God, guns, and Trump. Now, I'm not commenting on the politics behind that. We all have our ideas about politics. But what, uh, think about what that sign communicates to the average unchurched person driving by. Probably they think, yeah, that's what Christians are all about. They want their guns, and they voted for Trump. And that's the idea. That's not what we should be known for. We shouldn't be most passionate about our rights and our freedoms and our politics. Those things have their place. But we want people to think of us as associated with Christ. Speaking about the hope that we have in Him and adorning our witness with love and good works towards other people. And if we get hated for that, then so be it. But let the offense be the gospel and not all these side issues. An example of this is an Indian pastor that we call JP. I'm on the ordination committee. And our region is doing his testing so that he can be ordained as a pastor in Sovereign Grace. He'll be the first Indian pastor who's a Sovereign Grace pastor ordained in our process. So it's really a privilege to be a part of it. And this guy, JP, is a gem. I mean, he like, he's smarter than all of us. <laughs> his scores are like off the charts. And that's his second language in English. Anyway, JP's a great guy. Well, JP lives in, an in, in a village. I forget which part of India he's in. But it's all Hindu, as most Indian villages are. But he's a Christian there and a pastor there. 
And he's been trying to reach his community, but the Hindus, they shun him because he's a Christian. They know that. Well, then COVID hit. And when COVID hit, especially in a place like India, work shuts down. If you don't work, you don't eat. And so there's real distress in the village. Well, through partnership with Sovereign Grace Churches, a bunch, bunch of churches sent him money so that he could buy food and distribute food in the village. And so he'd go handing out food and he'd say, can I pray for you? Can I pray to Jesus for you? And they were willing. And so he became known as the food guy who prays to Jesus. <laughs> and they changed towards him. They started giving him a Christian greeting, even though he, they are not Christians, but some of them became believers in Jesus. Because it's bringing the good news of Jesus through good works, but being known as, I'm for you. There's a God. God has sent his son. I have benefited from him. You can too. And that's what he's known for. And that's, that's authenticated by real, passion, real compassion for people. That's what we want to be known for. We want to be known for the same things. The church in Antioch was born out of enthusiasm for the gospel. We'll have impact as we do the same. Here's another observation. Antioch was a church that grew through every member mission. Through every member mission. Not just a couple people, but as the whole group is involved. Think about how the church in Antioch got started and how it grew. It started with unnamed people who just went about their lives as witnesses for Christ after they moved to the city. So we hear, those who were scattered spoke the word to Jews. We don't know who they were. Just those. They were scattered and they preached the word. Some men of Cyprus and Cyrene spoke to the Hellenists also. We don't know who they were. There were some. And they're speaking to a different set of people. It was the disciples who mixed throughout the city and who were called Christians. We don't know their names. There's just a bunch of them. No prominent leader is at the front of this movement. It's just the ordinary, faithful followers of Jesus. And that leads to a great number who believed and turned to the Lord. The church didn't even start to get organized under clear leadership until Barnabas came. So there's this thing happening, this, this explosion of God's hand at work through these people in the city of Antioch. Nobody's really in charge of this thing, so Jerusalem hears about this. They send Barnabas. He's a, a man full of faith. He's an encourager. He's got discernment, and he sees this thing, and he, he's glad, and he encourages them, but he also thinks these people need some leadership. <laughs> so he goes to Tarsus to get Saul who by this time is a believer now, and he's been educated by Gamaliel. He's a sharp dude theologically. He's had 10 years now to, to think about these things from a Christian perspective, and he's involved in ministry in Tarsus. We don't know all that much about it. But Barnabas knows Saul. Let's get Saul over here. Saul could do this church a lot of good. And so he brings him, and then it says they spent a whole year teaching the church. So now there's finally some organization. Now there's finally some leadership that's being trained and developed. And it's starting to go well. And so then you get to chapter 13. And by that time, you've got names of leaders who are all praying together, worshiping and fasting and seeking God. That's the fruit of 
God bringing leadership and organization to this thing. But it didn't start that way, did it? It was just everybody, just everybody doing their thing, just everybody being faithful. Here's a takeaway. The church fulfills its mission to go and make disciples through the witness of all of its members. It isn't just a couple pastors who do all the work of mission. Pastors are called to do the work of an evangelist. Me and Dan and Todd, we have to be in our personal example seeking to share the gospel with people. Absolutely. Shouldn't be telling you anything that we're not doing. So that's there. We have that. But the church doesn't grow by just a few, called, a few so-called professional ministers who do all the outreach. It's each member making a difference in their own sphere of life, rubbing shoulders with coworkers and neighbors and extended family and being a Christian wherever the Lord has put you. That's the organic process of church growth. And if we're doing that, then we're most likely going to see something else that the church in Antioch did, which was cross cultural barriers to the gospel, to, to break barriers. We read that some spoke the word to no one except Jews, so they're, they're Jews, that's their heritage, that's what they're comfortable with. They want to share Jesus with somebody, but let's, let's start with the people that we know, <laughs> right? Let's people of the same background. But it says some spoke to the Hellenists also, to the Greeks, to the non-Jews. So they're breaking a barrier there. They're going to the guys who don't know anything about the Hebrew Bible or synagogues or anything. They're unchurched, they're pagans, they're Greeks, they have their little idols in their houses, and they're crossing over that barrier, and they're speaking to them about it. So if you live in close proximity with the people in your city, especially a diverse city like Antioch was, or like this city is, you're going to see cultural barriers, and that's our challenge to cross over into them. Because the gospel isn't just for one kind of person. It's for everybody. When you look at that scene in Revelation, every tribe and tongue and people and nation is there. That's how God wants to build his church. From just all kinds of different races, all kinds of different stages in life, whatever, cultures and subcultures. I mean, the gospel is for everybody. And so if you're in a big city where you've got lots of diversity, like this city, and we're being faithful Christians wherever we are, there's going to be opportunities to cross over. If we're faithful, we will cross over because there's nobody that we should say, oh no, I won't talk to them. No, because they're too different from me. True, that creates some, some interactional problems. You know, I don't really know where to start and that kind of awkwardness. But that person that's across from you, who's of a different race, of a different, uh, you know, whatever, um, they have culturally different um, hobbies and interests and all that, that person is still made in the image of God. So that means that they have potential to bring God glory like nothing else in creation can. And they are like you in the sense that they also have the same kind of brokenness that this world is full of, right? We all have brokenness in our life. We have heartbreaking stories. We have sins. We have guilt on our conscience. We have sorrows. And we all need a friend to talk to about it. And we need hope. And as a believer in Jesus, you have the hope. You actually have 
the answer to what everybody's looking for. This is the answer. It's in this book. <laughs> it's, it's God's kindness to show us where life is and that life is found in Jesus Christ. And so if that's on our heart, if we're enjoying that and if we want other people to enjoy that, then God has put us in spheres where there are people who are not like us. And so, yes, definitely do start with the people who are like you, okay? That's even hard, right? But don't stop there. It's anybody. It's whoever. And if we're doing that, you're going to end up with a church like Antioch because when you, look, when you look at chapter 13, you see that the people who are now leaders in the church are diverse. They're all, they're all different. They're not cookie cutter. Um, Acts 13.1, just look at some of the names that are here. You've got Saul, so he's later called Paul. Uh, he was from Tarsus in present-day Turkey. He has the equivalent of a Harvard degree. Uh, educated by Gamaliel, you know, like the top. That's like the best you can get. So here's this brainy guy, well-off, well-educated, also a Roman citizen. That's a big thing. Um, you have Barnabas, who's from Cyprus, the island country in the Mediterranean. Uh, we, the only main thing we know about him is he's a real encouraging guy and discerning, and he's full of the Spirit and wisdom and all that. Um, but both those guys are from a Jewish background. But then you go and you look at a guy named Simeon who was called Niger. Niger means dark complexioned. He's a black man, probably from Africa, like the Ethiopian eunuch. You have a guy named Lucius of Cyrene. Lucius is a Greek name. So here's a Greek guy, and he's from present-day Libya. That's where Cyrene was. So maybe we think... Arab, Greek-Arab, that would be an interesting combination today, but that's what he was. Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod was a ruler of one quarter of the kingdom. So Manaean is a guy who rubs shoulders with the high and mighty. Uh, he's well-connected politically. He's probably wealthy. This is who leads the church <laughs> in Antioch after People are just spreading the gospel in their spheres, talking to whoever, and then some leadership is brought in, and they like train up these guys, and now you've got like a leadership team that looks pretty much like the city of Antioch in terms of its composition. How does that happen? Every member ministry, everybody being faithful where God has put you. So you're all in different places. You're, you might be hanging out with the rich, you might be hanging out with the poor, Blue-collar, white-collar, military, civilian, old and young, we're all in different places, and none of us are in all of those places, right? If, if, if you want to be reaching all different kinds of people, well, some of us don't have, you know, huge opportunities. Like, if you're a mom at home, you, you, you're probably not going to mix around with totally lots of different people, Right? Uh, but, but we have different spheres. If you're a teacher, you're going to be accessing students, all sorts of academic people. You know, if you're a programmer and you're working in a big building, I mean, you've got a whole team that you're working with, hopefully, now that people can go back to work. Uh, but God has put different people in our lives, right? And they're not all the same people. But collectively, we have access to all sorts of people, right? And all of them should hear the gospel, and so that's what faithfulness looks like to the mission. It's just being faithful, just being an obvious Christian where you are. 
whatever that means. If it's extended family, great. If it's your coworkers, great. If it's the people that share your own interests, you know, then great. We're running into all sorts of people. We can share this good news about Jesus with them. We don't ultimately decide how diverse our church ends up being because really anybody who comes to know Jesus, that's the work of God. The hand of the Lord has to be on that. He decides the makeup of the church. But faithfulness does look like being people who will approach anyone with Jesus. And then we might end up with a church like Antioch. Now, one more observation about the church in Antioch and their example of mission. It's a church that reproduced in partnership with other churches. They reproduced. More churches came out of this church eventually in partnership with other churches. So let's go back to Acts 13 in that prayer meeting with the elders, with the leaders, I should say. Starting in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, this is a historic moment. This is what makes Antioch a church that Luke made sure to include in his account of the spread of the gospel. This is the first time a church is intentionally sending out people to reach the unreached as a decision. Because in Jerusalem, persecution scattered everybody. They're like, i got to get out of here. But that wasn't a strategy. <laughs> that was just like, I need to run for my life. This is a decision. This is planned. This is the result of worshiping and praying and seeking God and saying, what next? And the Holy Spirit says, here's what's next. Set apart. These two guys that, that I brought in to help you out, now I want you to send them away. <laughs> to go do what? Well, to find out what, you'd have to read 13 and 14, because that's the account of the first missionary journey, as we call it, about 18 months that they were out. What were they doing? What was the work the Holy Spirit set them apart to do? We can find that out by looking at Acts 14, 21 to 23 as a, as a little encapsulation of it. This is towards the end of their journey. It said, when they had preached the gospel to that city, which was Lystra, and had made many disciples, no, not Lystra, Derby, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, that's a different Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So here was the work. First, preaching the gospel. Right? That's where all everything is born out of. <laughs> this good news about forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. Second, strengthening the souls of the disciples. So they're teaching. Uh, they're, they're, they're teaching them about how the gospel affects your life and where you get strength from it and all of this. And now many people would say, well, that's all that it was. It's just preaching the gospel. It's strengthening. Um, you have like Bible studies and so forth and that that's the Great Commission. That's the mission and anybody can do that anywhere. 
But that would be to leave out a very third important part of the work. The third part was they appointed elders for them in every church. The work the Holy Spirit set them apart to do was to preach the gospel and make disciples who would form into new churches under elder leadership. That's what the work was. Reproducing churches was the work. Church planting was the work. This is how the gospel reaches the world. It's churches enthusiastic about the gospel, reaching their community through every member mission, and then sending out their own to start more churches that will reach more communities. And then repeat and repeat and repeat until the gospel has gone to every nation and Jesus returns. <laughs> That's God's strategy for reaching the world. Here's how that impacts us. If we really believe that is God's strategy, then that means we don't just farm out the Great Commission to somebody else and expect them to do it. We don't just hand it off to the professionals, whoever they are. <laughs> we take ownership of that commission as a church. We make it a part of our thinking, a part of our prayer, a part of our planning to become a church that plants other churches. We think beyond ourselves, and we are ready to raise up and send out people from us. Now, we can be thankful for many so-called parachurch ministries, which is a term that means come alongside the church. Campus ministries, evangelizing on universities. I was saved through a campus ministry. Grateful for that. Mission agencies that help people to get into closed countries and hard places and so forth. Um, Pioneers, for example, is the agency that the Englands are with in Thailand that we support as a church and some of you individually. They help them get there. We can be thankful for these specialized ministries that God has raised up to help the church fulfill its mission. But there's no replacing the centrality of the church in reaching the world. The Lord intends to reach the world through churches that are sending out church planters to take the message of Jesus Christ to new areas. And when you think about that, it may seem daunting to think about, let's say, us as a church. How can we really be involved in that? Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons why it feels daunting, at least to me. One is the relational cost. If you send people out, most likely they're good friends or family or your best leaders, your most gifted people. That's why they're going. I mean, they got the package. They can, they can handle this. And that, those are the people we don't want to lose, right? We want to keep them here. I, I personally like the idea of having a church where we all stay together for life. I would love that. It tears me apart to have people leave. I don't like sending people out, um, especially the ones that are doing so much good. There's plenty to do right here in this church. Don't go. <laughs> that sounds good to me. But that's not God's plan because his vision is bigger than any one church. 
It's a vision to build his global church, his universal church, and it's going to take people from existing churches to go do that. And when they go, they are often going to be the people that you don't think you can live without. Just think about the church in Antioch. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So if that's me in the meeting, I'd be thinking, I didn't hear that right. I don't think the Holy Spirit said that. (laughs) That is not a good idea. We need those guys. (laughs) They have brought so much health to this church, and they're not done yet. (laughs) But that's who the Holy Spirit said, no. Take, send them away because I've got other churches to build and I have something for these guys to do. It's a sacrifice to send out your people. It was a sacrifice to a church in Fairfax, Virginia to send a bunch of families to this area to plant this church in 1998. It was a sacrifice for a church in Virginia Beach, Virginia to send a bunch of families also to this area to start the church in Westminster. It will involve sacrifice for us to send out people from our church But God is faithful, and he knows how to build his church. He knows who he wants here and there and who he wants to stay, which is still most of us. Here's another reason the idea of church planning from churches can seem daunting. We wonder, how are we ever going to do that, specifically us? We're maybe 80 people with babies, and and, and probably a few people off the street that we needed to fill out the number. How can we be involved functionally in church planting? We haven't done it in 20 years. Um, It just doesn't seem realistic that we can do much there. Well, that's the other part of Antioch's example that comes in. They planted churches in partnership with other churches. The only other church in existence at this time was the church in Jerusalem that we know about. And they were interdependent with that church. They had a partnership going on. And we see it in a couple of different ways. First of all, the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to this developing church flock movement thing in Antioch. And he comes and he brings clarity to it. He brings leadership to it. Um, he figures out they need a Paul to help this thing going. And Paul comes in because he's a guy that could understand Antioch. He's a guy who's a Roman citizen and a Pharisee. He knows the Jewish world. He knows the pagan world. Perfect guy to come into Antioch and start to lead this thing. So that's Jerusalem's contribution. Let's send Barnabas, and Barnabas gets Saul, and together they, they, they build up this church. That's a serious partnership. But also Antioch provided something. In 1129, we learn they sent a financial gift to the Jerusalem church. Agabus the prophet comes down, he says there's going to be a famine in the land. The famine actually did happen, we learn. So in anticipation of that, believing that was from the Holy Spirit, Antioch, which is a a thriving, prosperous city, and it's got Manaean in one of the leadership, and he knows Herod. I mean, they've got some money, right? So let's send help to Jerusalem, to our origin church to our mother church let's help them out we recognize we've gotten something from them we've gotten theological understanding we've gotten stability what we can do for them is not that but we can give them money and and help them survive 
So there's this two-way partnership going on between the churches. And it results in Antioch getting to a point where now they have some leadership and they have stability and they're going to be okay and they can now release Barnabas and Saul to go plant another church and many churches. And that's one of the reasons I love being in the denomination of Sovereign Grace Churches. Because we have partnership, significant partnership. Um, it's well defined now. We've got documents. <laughs> but it isn't about the documents as much as it's about the relationships that we are benefiting from, that are helping each other to grow healthy as a church and to start more churches. There's 80, roughly 80 churches in Sovereign Grace in the U.S. There's that many outside the U.S. that are either already part of us or wanting to be adopted. There are more churches that want to be part of Sovereign Grace than there are churches in Sovereign Grace. We have partnerships all around the world. Our, our, our ordination of this guy in India is just one example of that. But we have all sorts of other ways we partner. Todd was trained in the pastor's college that's part of our partnership. That's what we're getting from being in this. Our statement of faith was hammered out by 70 elderships, and that's what we're preaching through right now. That's a fruit of our partnership. Even our connection with Rancho 3M, that came through our connections through Sovereign Grace Churches, and we're helping other churches through the money that we give to Sovereign Grace to go through things like Pastors College and the Global Missions Fund and a whole bunch of other things. It's a significant thing to be a part of. And I'll give you an example of what it looks like to be, help, to be involved in the church planting through this partnership. There's a church plant in San Antonio. I can't remember if it's already happened or it's on its way. But here's how it got, here's how it got going. There's one church that had a guy who was like ready to plant a church. But he didn't have much else. It was just the guy. So another church has like a, a worship leader. And he's like, yeah. I, I would love to be a part of that. And then there's other churches like, you know, I've been thinking about maybe going to San Antonio. Maybe the Lord is saying something. And so then they, they join the team, and they're coming from other churches. And then the, uh, the region, it was mostly the Texas region, they had funds in their regional budget to support this thing, to, to give this guy a salary for the first couple of years. That's how, functionally, we can be a part of planting churches. There isn't only one way. But there is a way, and there's a way because we're actually doing it together and not just by ourselves. So don't despair that because we're only 80 people or so that we can't be involved. We absolutely can be. And who knows, maybe the Lord will raise up from among us those who are going to be part of that next church plan, either leading it or being a part of it or funding it. But we can be, and we want to be thinking that way. It's exciting to be a part of our churches right now. I think the Lord, the hand of the Lord is with us. Let me bring this to a close. I know that the whole topic of mission is an uncomfortable one for many of us. It takes work. It means sacrifice. And we know there's opposition. There is persecution. We can think our culture is too secular and the environment too hostile and go into a survival mode and maintenance mode and just live in a Christian sub subculture and that feels safer. But we have the Church of Antioch as a reminder that a non-Christian culture, even one that is actively persecuting Christians, is exactly the environment in which the church began to grow and in which it has always grown. 
This is no strange thing <laughs> to the Lord. This is consistent with all of history. God is always working where there is no light. Light comes into darkness, and his hand is on his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against his mission. That's what we get to be a part of. Jesus rules over this world, and he is with his church. He wins, and his church wins. In the end, you're not on the wrong side of history when you join Jesus in his mission. You're part of the only thing that will last for eternity, which is Jesus building his church that the gates of hell will not prevail against. And on the other side of this life, sacrifice and suffering is glory and great reward. And along the way, daily joys. <laughs> As we get to see the Lord work in this life and that life, and change us and make us into more like Jesus and have times of fellowship where we're encouraging one another. Those are not small things. That's where life is. So let's live in the good of the gospel because it is the answer to all of life's problems, everybody's problems. And it's good that we get the opportunity to tell it to people. And some will listen. You did, if you're a believer. Let's live in the good of it, and then let's together offer it to the people around us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that through the whole stream of history, through your eternal plan, it all wove through to this very moment that we're in right now. This is part of this greater thing that you're doing around the world. And we thank you that you privileged us to be a part of it. We will need your Holy Spirit to be upon us and your hand to be upon us so that we can have the love and the courage and the enjoyment of your goodness that we need in order to be on mission. But we thank you that that's exactly what you love to do. And so work it in us, Lord. We want to see the same kind of fruits and be encouraged like Barnabas when he saw it. And I thank you that it's already happening among us. We're privileged um, so just, Lord, would you glorify your name through us and send us out into wherever we are.